DW Inside Europe. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. On today's programme, we respond to the chilling news of a secret meeting at which members of Germany's far-right AFD party discussed a master plan for the deportation of millions of people. We'll be talking to both our political correspondent Thomas Sparrow and Turkish dissident journalist Jan Dunda. Democracy is fragile and it must have the power to protect itself. If you don't respect the social contracts, You are out of the game. You should be out of the game. Also on Inside Europe, more lessons from Turkey as we take a closer look at President Erdogan's crackdown on civil society. Those stories and more coming up on the programme. Tens of thousands of people have been taking to the streets of Germany, shocked and concerned by revelations of a secret meeting between AFD politicians and far-right identitarian and neo-fascist activists to discuss a master plan for the mass deportation of millions of people, including German nationals with foreign ancestry. The revelations were made in an investigation carried out by the non-profit newsroom Corrective. The full text of that investigation is available in English on the Corrective website under the title Secret Plan Against Germany. We'll be linking to it and we really can't recommend enough that listeners go and seek it out for themselves. For now, though, here is our political correspondent, Thomas Sparrow, to sum it up for us. In November last year, there was a secret meeting near Berlin where a group of far-right politicians, extremists, uh, neo-Nazis, business people, and also two members of the right wing within the main opposition party, the CDU, met at a very picturesque villa near Berlin to discuss plans to send basically millions of foreigners, millions of asylum seekers and also non-assimilated Germans, as they described, away from Germany to deport them to what was described as a North African country. And this, these are plans that are known under the word of remigration or re-emigration. I don't know how to, even to pronounce it, but the word in, in, in German is remigration. And since then, obviously, there has been a huge debate here in the country On the one hand, because it brings back very painful memories of the Nazi era uh, here in the in the country. In fact, the villa where these people met is only about 10 kilometers away from where the Nazis discussed the final solution of the Jewish situation back then. And because also the Nazis had in the 1940s a similar plan, or at least they discussed a similar plan to send millions of Jews to the uh, African island of Madagascar. So that's one element why this is so controversial. But obviously, it's also very controversial, simply because of the shocking nature of this, a plan, a secret plan to send millions of foreigners and non-assimilated Germans away from the country. We are speaking in the run-up to regional elections in the East, where the IFD is expected to get more votes than any other party. And also, as you mentioned, at the meeting, there were two members of the Christian Democrat, the CDU party, people who are involved with a grouping called the Werteunion, the Union of Values, which seeks to promote uh, coalition politics between the two parties. Perhaps you could just pick up there and sort of talk about the RFD's pathways to power. I mean, how realistic is the impl implementation of something like this? 
we have to differentiate here between the German political system and maybe the political system in other countries. In other countries, when a party gets the most votes in an election, they can automatically then end up governing. But here in Germany, it's it's a different matter altogether. In most cases, you have coalition governments that have to be formed. So this basically means that even if the AFD ends up getting the most votes in the three regional elections that are going to take place in the second semester of this year, that does not automatically mean that the AFD will then lead the regional governments. They would then have to find parties with which they could form a coalition. And here is where the big challenge for the AFD is. Most parties, if not all of the democratic parties, have stressed that they would not be interested in working with the AFD. There have been some specific local instances where, for local measures, the parties have worked together. But on a regional level, having a regional government, that is something very different. There will be discussions and there are members within the CDU, within this main opposition party in uh, the federal level here in Germany, that maybe are looking into the possibility of uh, forming a coalition with the with the AFD. But it's also important to say that this Werte Union is not necessarily a grouping that represents the whole CDU. It's a rather a fringe grouping, I would call it. It's not even an official grouping within the, within the CDU. And as such, the members there have already clashed with the party as a whole. There's discussion even that some members within the, the Werte Union are thinking about forming their own sort of split splinter party, a separate party, if you will. So it's all very complicated. But to make things very clear, very short, the AFD might win the elections in those three regions in the east. It does not, however, mean that they will then lead the government in those three regions. Let's talk about consequences, Thomas. Um, the most senior IFD politician to have been at that meeting was a certain Holland Hartwig, right-hand man to IFD party leader Alice Weidel. Um, he has now been let go. So the IFD, for example, confirmed that Mr. Hartwig had attended, but apparently the idea was to present some sort of social media project and the AFD indeed distanced itself from some of the elements that were uh, discussed in that uh, in that meeting. But the fact that you have very significant, close confidant of one of the party's leaders, Alice Weidel, basically means or has basically been interpreted as meaning that the AFD leadership was obviously aware of the existence of this uh, meeting. And because there were people there who were talking about these migration plans, that obviously the party leadership was more or less informed. And what happened now is that Alice Weidel decided, according to different reports, to basically stop working together with Mr. Hartwig. That's one political consequence, at least from the AFD side. But when we look at the political consequences from those who reject the fact that this meeting took place, then there are different elements that have to be considered. There are those who say that the main reaction should come from the rest of society, that actually Germans should not accept these kinds of meetings. And that's why you're seeing in different parts of Germany protests against the AFD, against these kinds of policies that are described as extremists, these kinds of migration policies that are reminiscent of what happened in Germany many decades ago. So that's one element of a reaction to these kinds of to this meeting. Another possible reaction comes from the political uh, side. So parties basically stressing that they need to 
work harder against the AFD, that when it comes to political topics, and specifically migration, they need to present their policies in a much clearer way to try and attract voters, try and convince voters that they're dealing with this issue. And a third possible consequence comes from the courts, basically comes from the possibility that the AFD could be banned. This is a discussion that's happening right now in Germany. There are many hurdles for a party to be banned in Germany. In fact, a party has only been banned in Germany twice, both in the 1950s. It can only happen after a decision by Germany's constitutional court, and it can only happen after certain institutions like the federal government or the German parliament actually present this petition for that to happen. So there are many, many, many hurdles as to whether the AfD could or couldn't be be banned. And there's a lot of discussion as to whether that is politically a good idea or not. DW's political correspondent Thomas Sparrow there. As Thomas mentioned, one of the key demands of the protests which have been taking place in the wake of the Corrective investigation is that the AFD, Alternative for Germany, be banned as a party. One of the most considered and authoritative voices speaking out in favour of such a ban is that of Turkish dissident journalist in exile, Can Dunda. When I spoke to him on the phone this week, Jan told me that his decision to speak out was based on his experience in Turkey and reminded me that back in 2008, there had been an attempt at the Turkish Constitutional Court to prescribe President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's AKP party on the grounds that it was violating the separation of state and religion. Back then, Chandunda explained, he had been against the idea of a ban – But subsequent events, including a media crackdown which saw him first jailed and then exiled to Germany, made him change his mind. Well, I was, of course, a journalist covering the case at the Constitutional Court, but I was also uh, a columnist and I was writing about uh, the issue. And to be honest, I was against the closure of the party at that time for several reasons. First, I thought that this decision would drive the party underground. And the second thing was uh, the will of those who voted for the party would be disregarded. And politically, of course, the party will be victimized and may benefit from this. And of course, historically in Turkey, many parties have been closed down for, for decades, but they returned stronger. Well, these are all, of course, arguments that we've heard um, made by many of your German colleagues this week in light of the AfD revelations. You, however, in the Turkish context, changed your mind. What made you change your mind? Well, the AKP has got stronger in years and abused its power. They were poisoned by this power. And now they come to the point of closing of the other rival parties and even the constitutional court. Democracy is fragile and it must have the power to protect itself. So it's not how many voters has the party that needs to be looked at, but rather whether it complies with the constitutional law. If you don't respect the social contracts, You are out of the game. You should be out of the game. So anyone should respect the constitution. And 
if we start checking how many waters they have, etc., so then we are losing the constitution. We are losing the, the rule of the law. And then it's a political decision. Then when they are stronger, it's almost impossible to stop them. They are coming to power by using democracy to destroy democracy. And now this is the lesson we learned. And I hope our German colleagues and German people would get a lesson out of this. Of course, quite rightly, the headlines have been taken up with um, this incredibly chilling master plan that was revealed whereby RFD members and others were discussing mass re-migration, as they called it, of millions of people. However, another item on the agenda at that meeting was also how to uh, attack and control and undermine public broadcasting in Germany. Now, you as a journalist came very much to feel the consequences of what it means to be working in a, a media context which is under attack. Perhaps you could paint me a picture of what that is like. It's kind of painful and scary because not only me, but uh, thousands of people uh, fleed from Turkey and we escaped from this kind of approach, this kind of authoritarian approaches over media, over our democracy, our freedoms. And now, unfortunately, we have to deal with similar issues in Germany. Of course, it's total, the conditions are totally different and the democratic tradition of the two countries are quite different. And the people's resistance is higher here. That's so important. But of course, it's scary. And many of my friends around me who came from Turkey starts, you know, packing their luggages after listening what was going on in this hotel room. I mean, when you look at the, the polls, results of the polls, you can see that something is approaching. And this something would cause us to be kicked out from the country. Of course, many of them scared that uh, we just celebrated the 100 years anniversary of Turkey. And now we start fearing of the 100 years anniversary of 1933. Um, so what kind of a Germany is waiting for us in the year 233? So this is the question mark of everyone's minds, unfortunately. You personally, uh, Jan, I mean, your, your life is literally protected at the moment by a security detail funded by the German state. So a lot is personally for you on the line as well. Are you packing your bags? Well, it depends, of course. I, I'm a fighter. So I fight for Turkish democracy in Turkey. Unfortunately, it was not easy. And I was jailed, I was attacked, but then uh, I was exiled, so I found myself in Germany. And if there's another fight is waiting for us, of course we have to give it. And I'm really hopeful after seeing so many people protesting uh, on the streets of Germany, and this is important, I mean, this, this reaction can save a democracy. Otherwise, not the 
the decisions of the constitutional court, not the decisions of the parliament, but the people's reaction is crucial in, in, in such cases. So seeing that was really kind of relaxing for me. And I felt not alone in this fight. And if a fight should be given, even here in Germany, of course, we are ready to give it together with our German friends. Jan Dunder, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. Jan Dunder is a Turkish journalist and editor in exile. Until 2016, he was the editor-in-chief of the major Turkish Cumhuriyet newspaper, and he is now editor-in-chief of Özgürüz, a web radio station which is run by the non-profit newsroom Korrektiv. We'll be looking in more detail at the current situation in Turkey after the break. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. Our lessons from Turkey continue now as we take a look at the increasingly precarious position of civil society within the country. In the aftermath of his election victory last year, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has stepped up his crackdown against non-governmental organisations. Significant international donors are either ending or cutting back their support. And as Dorian Jones reports from Istanbul, civil rights defenders claim that they are being abandoned. Buoyed by his re-election in May, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is continuing his crackdown on elements of Turkey's civil society, who he accuses of threatening democracy. At the same time, there's dwindling international support for many NGOs defending civil rights. SPOT, an LGBTQ support group, is facing a financial battle for survival. Its general coordinator... Oljan Yediveren says the situation has gone from bad to worse since Erdogan's re-election in terms of foreign funding. We applied for a funding program. They told us that we will evaluate your application uh, in the second cycle, uh, which was after the election. Uh, and then they rejected our uh, application. But of course, we don't know the exact reasons of this Maybe this is a coincidence. Uh, maybe this is because of the election. Yedi Verem says such episodes have become all too common from once regular international donors. Their support, he says, is vital to providing services like telephone helplines and legal and psychological support for the LGBTQ community. It's very important because uh, it is the only financial resource of us. So as long as we receive these uh, international funds, uh, we can continue our activities. Since the elections, the percentage of the accepted applications is decreasing. It is the data, it is not an evaluation. And it is almost impossible to do all these activities based on voluntariness. So these fundings are important for organizations to survive. 
Since Erdogan's re-election, he has sought to further tighten his control on Turkey. That can only add to growing international donor concerns over the effectiveness of Turkish civil society organizations. Warns Sinan Gökçen. He's the head of the Turkish branch of the Sweden-based Civil Rights Defenders Group. I was told that donors do not see the output impact such things outcome effectively for the money that they invest in Turkey. They have a thinking that, well, we've been supporting civil society organizations for several, several years, investing all this money, but we don't see any change. There's a decline, uh, hesitation by the international donors targeting Turkey, and this has been intensified, especially after elections. And finally, for some big donors, war in Ukraine took their money. They prioritized supporting civil society organizations, journalists, and other groups within Ukraine. The earthquakes in Turkey last February also saw donors switch support to humanitarian relief away from civil society organizations. A major European donor also ended its support for Turkey last month, adding to a growing list of withdrawals. Murat Çelikan is with the Rights and Justice Association. The open society uh, is no longer funding in Turkey, and I think it was around $2 million uh, for civil society and an extra $2 million funding for refugee organizations. And then uh, a very special organization, the Cress Foundation from U.S. also stopped funding because it was targeted by the pro-government press severely. Domestic financial support is also drying up after philanthropist Osman Kavala was given a life sentence for seeking to overthrow the government. He was convicted of backing the 2013 nationwide Gezi protests against Erdogan's rule a conviction condemned by both Washington and the European Court of Human Rights. But Erdogan defends Kavala's jailing, accusing civil society groups of conspiring with international donors against him. There is a person who financed the terrorists in the Gezi events. Now Kavala is behind bars. And who is behind him? The famous Hungarian Jew Soros, bellowed Erdogan. George Soros is a philanthropist whose Open Society Foundations were once a significant supporter of Turkey's civil society until pulling out in 2018, blaming government pressure. Sinan Gökçen of the Sweden-based Civil Rights Defenders Group warns the future of Turkey's civil society now hangs in the balance. Well, we've been talking about shrinking civic space in Turkey in the last uh, six, seven or eight years. Uh, we shrank, 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 and there, there's no space to shrink anymore. So this is the end of the story. Like, you know, we are squeezed in a very narrow field in terms of civil society activism and organizations. With Turkey's civil society under growing domestic pressure, international funds have never been more important. But with diminishing support, there's a growing sense of abandonment among many civil rights defenders. Dorian Jones, DW, Istanbul. It's an unlikely place for a rallying cry for democracy, we know. But if you head on over to Spotify, you'll find that this week's poll is right on topic. 
Inside Europe is, of course, also available on all the other usual platforms, and that now includes YouTube via the DW Podcasts channel. That, by the way, is a really good link for sharing. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. Coming up this half hour. Right here in such beautiful country, in Switzerland, we have made a key political contribution to the possibility of ending the war. Peace must be the answer. Thank you. War and peace. Vladimir Zelensky addresses the World Economic Forum in Davos. Blame game, counting the political fallout from Spain's plastic pellets spill. Too big to fail, why is France still defending actor Gérard Depardieu? And taking the plunge, our Norway correspondent checks out Oslo's floating saunas. He's sticking his head. <laughs> Broadcasting from Germany, this is Inside Europe. This week, leaders from government, business and civil society convened in the Swiss resort of Davos for the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum. Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky was there in person to deliver a rousing speech urging the international community to double down on its efforts to support Ukraine and thwart Russian President Vladimir Putin, who, Zelensky said, embodies war. DW's Kyiv correspondent, Nick Connolly, was following the speech closely. Here's what he made of it. I think this was an attempt to basically provide a cold shower for Western backers, allies, friends of Ukraine, who, seen from Kyiv, have got a bit complacent, who maybe, without really thinking things through, are convinced that they did their bit in 2023 and that that is basically as much as they need to do. His message was that not only can Ukraine not win without further support, but also that it might not even be able to hold on to what it currently has in terms of its territory if things don't change and go back to kind of the high watermark of supplies that we saw at the beginning of 2023. Um, so there was a real kind of sense of urgency. He kept it short. He had a lot more time, but didn't use it all. It was pretty punchy. He was making it clear that Russia would not be stopped through diplomacy, that Vladimir Putin wants to take more territory and most importantly he said that you're basically not doing us a favour, you're doing yourself a favour because if you don't support us to stop Russia then you're going to have to fight Russia yourselves with your own weapons and your own people. 
Vladimir Zelensky, of course, appearing in person at Davos this year, the first time that he has done that. Uh, pr previously, um, he has been appearing via video link. Do you think that's significant? I think this was as much as he could do. We all remember those pictures from the earlier months of the war, his first visits abroad to foreign parliaments, the standing ovations that he was met with then. Obviously, now it's a bit more difficult. We're almost into year three. The second anniversary is almost uh, just a few weeks away. And it's not that he's now just another leader looking for support, lobbying for his country. He still has some uh, special status and more attention than lots of other speeches, but it is more difficult. I think this is totally normal for a conflict, for a war that doesn't have Western troops involved, as was the case in Afghanistan and Iraq. I think the level of attention is still far in excess of what you'd see in most of the wars at this stage uh, in the game. But certainly they're acutely conscious here in Kiev of the fact they need to stay on the front pages, they need to get those headlines, they need to keep that attention, because without pressure from civil society, from uh, people who you know, influence public opinion in Western capitals, Ukraine just isn't going to get what it needs. And there is, of course, a time element here because we are in a crucial election year, both in the United States and in Europe, where the balance of power could shift. To what extent do you think that will have been on his mind? Well, I think what's happening in the United States right now has been a real wake-up call. Um, I think people still are confident here that Western nations and, and even public opinions will see that it is in their interest to support Ukraine. Um, it's not just about protecting Europe, say, from Russian military aggression, that was the line that Zelensky used, but also in terms of the American audience, he was trying to stress this kind of new uh, axis of evil, as it were, making it kind of clear quite how closely linked Russia is, not only with China, but also with Iran and North Korea. And we've seen in recent weeks, North Korean missiles being used against Ukrainian cities. So that was something he was also trying to really force home. Putin is trying to normalize what should have ended in the 20th century. Mass deportations, cities and villages raised to the ground, and the terrifying feeling that the war may never end. In fact, Putin embodies war. We all know that he is the sole reason why various wars and conflicts persist and why all attempts to restore peace have failed and he will not change. He will not change. His answer to the limits of chaos in the world is the boundless support of terrorist forces. He enjoys conflicts that cause suffering to others. His answer to calls for peace is supplying more and more weapons from North Korea and Iran. And we, we all, we all in a free world exist as long as we can defend ourselves. But also in terms of his message specifically to European allies, he was very, very careful to make the case that Ukraine is actually fighting not just uh, in its own defence, but in defence of Europe. Exactly. And I, that is something that people here in Kiev bristle at, the suggestion that somehow they are having to beg for help, that they should be grateful. There's recognition of the support that Ukraine has received, and it has been uh, very significant in terms of the numbers, the billions of euros and dollars that have arrived. But if you compare it to national budgets, if you compare it to the spending, for instance, that the US does on its own military, right now the support 
that Ukraine has received is still less than 5% of the annual US defence budget. There's a real sense here that complacency in Europe needs to be challenged and that uh, Ukraine also sometimes needs to be have some confidence and not just be in the position of the uh, supplicant asking for stuff, but also saying this is what you stand to lose if you don't give us what we need. If anyone thinks this is only about us, this is only about Ukraine, they are fundamentally mistaken. Possible directions and even timeline of a new Russian aggression beyond Ukraine become more and more obvious. Let me ask very honestly, which European nation today can provide a combat-ready army on par with ours, holding back Russia? And how many men and women are your nation ready to send to defend another state, another nation? And if one must fight against Putin together in the years ahead, isn't it better to put an end to him and his war strategy now, while our brave men and women are already doing it? Davos is, of course, the setting for the meeting of the World Economic Forum. So it's bringing together not just political leaders, but also business and financial leaders. And uh, there was a particular Ukrainian mission there in terms of garnering uh, donations for the uh, Ukrainian recovery fund that uh, Kiev uh, is championing. Um, what can you tell me about that effort and its success? I think, as is the case, often when these kind of international forums uh, meet and reconstruction money or development money is being asked for, there's a huge discrepancy between initial uh, initial promises, initial claims, and what is eventually delivered, uh, if it's delivered in full or if it's re-announced several times or if it ha comes in many, many smaller drips rather than the one larger transfer that would be of most use to Ukraine and its finance ministry. Um, I think what is important was the focus, the kind of thrust of Zelensky's and also the Ukrainian government arguments more broadly was, we understand this is a lot of money, we understand that lots of government budgets are stretched right now, you don't need to give us your tax dollars or tax euros, you can just confiscate those Russian assets abroad that have been frozen since February 22, you just have to find the courage and the legal instruments to do so, and then you can give us that money. You don't need to endanger your own budgets. Uh, so these arguments and the kind of long-term perspective on the funding become more important. And this is, of course, accompanied by the 10-point peace plan with which uh, Vladimir Zelensky uh, arrived in Davos. What can you tell me about this plan, its contents, and uh, also how it was received? I think this is a, largely a PR exercise. It's about engaging with countries outside Europe, outside uh, North America, and the normal places where support for Ukraine is strong, and to try to engage nations that are a bit more uncertain as to what position they take, whose side they're on, who they support in this. Right now, both Kiev and uh, Moscow think they can carry on fighting and uh, both still think that they can get what they want. So I don't think there's a real sense that either side is really willing to engage in negotiations for, for real. Finally, um, the glitzy holiday resort uh, atmosphere of Davos is, of course, a very, very, very different world to the reality uh, of the Ukrainian trenches this winter. So I wanted really to just uh, 
end by asking you um, what uh, what the mood is like in Ukraine. Your sort of reflections, really, at, at this stage as we enter another year of war. So I would say the initial adrenaline had basically run out by six months, nine months into the first year of war, so the end of 2022. The first few months kind of went past in a blur. And for many people, including me, who were here on the ground, it's very difficult to distinguish and to recall what happened in what order because it was just all so fast and so intense. Um, I think definitely people are tired. Lots of soldiers have been fighting since the beginning of the war and have barely had any respite, have maybe been home once for two weeks, which is not really enough to do anything except to show them how different home is from where they are most of the time. Um, we were at the front lines just before Christmas and you had a mixture of people who'd volunteered and those who'd been called up and it was tough. They were surrounded by mice and rats. They had mobile internet down in the trenches so they could see Christmas preparations for Christmas back at home. They could see their children growing up without them. But when you ask people, so what's the alternative? Are you willing to see some kind of deal cut at Moscow's terms? None of them said yes, even when the camera was off. And I think for now, for most people here, the current situation, bad as it is, is still the least bad option. I was speaking to DW's Kyiv correspondent, Nick Connolly. To stay up to date with DW's ongoing coverage of the war in Ukraine, you can download DW's breaking news app. Here on Inside Europe, however, we are now off to Spain, where the country is still grappling with the fallout, both environmental and political, of a major cargo spill, which has seen millions of plastic pellets wash up on the shores of the north of the country, primarily in Galicia, over the past few weeks. The issue of plastics in our ocean is a highly emotive one, and worldwide there have been many calls to do something about it. From Spain, Ashish Sharma reports. It is an idyllic seascape. Waves crash out either on vast sandy beaches that run up and down the Galician coastline or rutted into small coves. But now millions of small white and rounded plastic pellets have begun washing up. Locals have quickly organised themselves into voluntary teams armed with utensils such as sieves and colanders to literally comb the beaches to collect the pellets. One volunteer was shocked to see so much plastic. He recalled the awful tragedy of 2002 in which an oil tanker called the Prestige spilled 60,000 tonnes of heavy fuel oil, devastating beaches in Galicia, France and Portugal. It's an environmental problem that doesn't immediately strike you as being very serious. But I remember the Prestige, and looking around you can see that this is non-biodegradable plastic, and it's going to be here for centuries. It soon transpired that a container ship called Tokonao, sailing under a Liberian flag, had reported losing six containers off the coast of Portugal on December the 8th. One container held a thousand sacks, each with 25 kilos of pellets in them. These are used in the manufacturing of plastic products. Jean Evans from the environmental group Ecologists in Action has been organising some of the clean-up operations on the beaches. Unfortunately, since uh, this weekend the uh, storm came in, we have a big storm raging these days 
and it's virtually impossible to continue with with the cleanup uh, operations in 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 the beaches but from what people are telling us and what we've seen there's still uh, a lot of pellets there's still loads of plastic much of this is being buried in the sand uh, the only way of of addressing it is actually picking up one by one one pellet by one so this is a an enormous task and now the blame game has started. The regional Galician government stands accused of having known of the spillage since December the 13th, when the first pellets appeared. However, President Alfonso Rueda shares a different time frame regarding the events. We have been working on this. The opposition party is doing nothing other than preparing for the coming elections. As for the central government, they've only just appeared. The first official communication we received from the government, who knew about this incident from the National Maritime Agency, was on January the 3rd. Then on the 7th, the vice president offered us government support. I mean, come on, couldn't they have done this before December the 20th instead of January the 7th? It's really been a bit embarrassing, really, to follow the whole, uh, you know, dispute over the past couple of weeks, particularly when the most important work could have been done trying to remove those uh, bags of pellets before they were damaged. That never happened. Um, and in fact, what we've seen also over the past few weeks is a lot of uh, disinformation, a lot of lies. And that's, uh, I think, really upset people. Um, uh, because it also is, it's also kind of a re reminiscent of what happened 20 years ago with Prestige when the government tried to minimize what was happening, uh, lie to people. And this is something we're just, um, you know, quite fed up with. The fact that the elections would coming, uh, are coming next month in February has really uh, shaped that response and, and, and really, you know, made a, a big situation, a big uh, issue of something that could have been addressed with the existing plans. An environmental emergency crisis has now been declared with support from the national government as well as coordinated work efforts from regional administrations and environmental groups are now looking at governments both at regional and national level to put into place regulations that can form a basis to better deal with a crisis like this in the future. Ashish Sharma, DW, Madrid. Now, could France's Me Too or Moi Aussi moment have finally come at last? All the prerequisites would seem to be there. One of France's biggest, perhaps even the biggest star, stands accused of rape and sexual assault. And now film footage has been unearthed of him apparently proffering obscenities to a woman and a girl of around 10. And yet... Dozens of French celebrities, large sections of the media and even President Macron himself have come to this particular star's defence. What is going on and what does it reveal about French society and its toleration of controversial exception culturelle? From Paris, John Lawrenson reports. <laughs> Il n'était qu'austérité et colère. 
Gérard Depardieu in All the Mornings of the World, one of the roles in one of his over 200 films that has made him the most famous, the most popular, probably just the best French movie actor alive today. But now he has become famous for another film, footage shot during the making of a documentary in North Korea, 2018. <laughs> where we see Depardieu making obscene comments to a series of women. And at a riding school about a girl of about 10. Depardieu is under investigation for rape, of which he is accused by three women. Thirteen others have accused him of sexual assault, particularly on film sets, including actress Sarah Brooks. We were lining up for a photo and he put his hand in my shorts. I pushed him away. He insisted. So I said, Gerard is putting his hand in my shorts. He said, I thought you wanted to succeed in the movies. And everyone laughed. No one took me seriously. Following the release of the Korean video, actress Carole Bouquet, who was married to Depardieu for 10 years, and 50 other celebrities signed an open letter denouncing what they said was an attempt to erase Depardieu. And when the then culture minister, who has since lost her job in a government reshuffle, suggested he be stripped of his Légion d'honneur medal, President Macron went on television to contradict her. I say it as president and I say it as a citizen. He makes us proud. Among our values is innocent until proven guilty. The problem with that principle when it comes to alleged sex crimes concerning famous people at least is that it takes such a long time to get a case to court, let alone a prosecution in France. Olivier Alexandre is a sociology professor with the French Political Science Institute Sciences Po. Since the Me Too movement in 2018, Harvey Weinstein has been found guilty and sentenced for rape and sexual assault. In France, Gérard Depardieu has been accused of the same, but the investigation launched years ago hasn't produced anything so far. But there's also been, in the past at least, a certain indulgence towards Depardieu because of his life story. He was raised in extreme poverty, was only born at all, in fact, because his mother's attempt to abort him with knitting needles failed. His father was a violent drunkard. He grew up in the streets. His recounting to an American journalist of gang rapes he witnessed, though later denied taking part in, starting when he was nine years old, was what first got him shunned in the United States. Aged 10, he prostituted himself to men. He left school at 12, could barely read and stammered. He did some weeks in prison at the age of 16 for car theft. And then, miraculously, he followed a friend to Paris, took drama lessons, cured his speech impediment, discovered literature and got into the movies. On est pas bien? Si. Paisible. But the roles he was first made famous for were all playing the bad boy he was. I didn't have to play a part, he said, just be myself, for which he was treated as a hero. Olivier Alexandre says French ambivalence about Depardieu's behaviour is partly because of the way the sexual revolution played out here when Depardieu was starting out as an actor 50 years ago. 
Gérard Depardieu, bah, c'est l'incarnation euh, du personnage dans Les Valseuses. In his first big film, Les Valseuses, he played a sort of outlaw, breaking the constraints put in place by the authority of fathers, policemen and judges. The artistic milieu questioned these limits between men and women and between adults and children. And the slogan of the May 1968 student revolt was It is forbidden to forbid. Which has, says Alexandre, been the watchword for the cultural elite of France until recently, at least among those of Depardieu's generation. The actor is now 75, growing old gracefully doesn't seem to be happening, but growing older outside prison for a disgraceful, though not yet disgraced, old cinema star in France, the chances are quite good. John Lawrenson, DW, Paris. John Lawrenson predicting a late awakening for L'Enfant Terrible of French cinema there. We have more cultural coverage of an altogether more wholesome Nordic variety this time coming up for you after the break. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. Last week, I was working from home because of a train strike. This week, Germany and much of Northern Europe has been laid low by snow. Lots of it. At the time of recording, the temperature in the Norwegian capital Oslo was minus 13 degrees centigrade, which is actually fairly warm considering that the mercury has already hit minus 30 this year. Still, that's not stopped people from plunging into the freezing Oslo fjord from the city's many floating saunas. But will our intrepid Scandinavian reporter Lars Bavanga take the plunge? I guess we're about to find out. I've been lured down to Oslo Harbour together with fellow journalist Amy McPherson. Now, she's the one who's quite reluctantly trying out what many people here say is good for you. Stepping out of a steaming hot floating sauna and plunging into the freezing Oslo fjord. Where shipyards and warehouses once dominated is now Oslo's newest and very trendy neighbourhood, housing the Monk Museum, Opera and more than 30 floating saunas. I'm uh, Ragna Fjell. I'm the leader of uh, Oslo Bastoforening, Oslo Sauna Association. Ragna Fjell is a veteran when it comes to cold water swimming. Back in 2016, she worked as a civil servant and was a member of the Foreign Ministry Cold Water Swimming Association. And that was the year it all started. And one day there was this weird building showing up and it turned out to be a sauna. And they didn't have a permission and stuff to have this building at the fjord. And we were like diplomats and bureaucrats and knew how to do applications. So we helped them and got this uh, legally placed at the inner harbour in Oslo city centre. And that was the very first one and that was, it was built out of driftwood, was it? That's correct. Out of driftwood found in the Oslo fjord. That's very operational. It's actually one of our most popular saunas. Fast forward to today, how yeah. many saunas have you got? 
we now have 17 saunas, but we soon we will have 18 in like two weeks, and we're planning three more. While saunas are usually associated with Finland, the sudden and rapid rise of floating saunas in Oslo city centre has been exceptional. They all have distinct and interesting designs, and this main cluster of saunas looks like a small floating village in between monumental buildings like the Opera House and the Munch Museum. The people using them swear by the physical and mental health benefits from getting nice and toasty, followed by an icy plunge. I try to go as often as possible. It restarts my whole uh, system, like my whole nervous system, and yeah, it just helps me cope with daily life. So today is really cold. It's like zero degrees, blustery. Yeah. Um, have you had a sauna and a dip in the water as Hell well? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Hell oh. yeah. It's worth it. You have you to go in there, Fjord. Yeah, you yeah. jump right in. Yeah. yeah. Straight in there. Yeah. What, what's so good about it? A shock to the system, maybe. You really feel in your body Definitely. when you're meeting the temperature extremes. You can choose to join a public session in the many floating saunas here or, as this group of young men have chosen on this Friday evening, rent one privately. But enough of that. You've all listened politely so far just to hear me suffer, I'm sure. And, yes, of course, I had to try it for myself. First, I got nice, hot and comfortable with a ten-minute sauna session before braving the elements. So I've got my sturdy assistant, Amy, to help me record this. You can do the hard work. Right, I'm not jumping in. I'm just slowly lowering lowering myself in. Flipping (laughs) it. It's like ice. You know, it's nice when it's in a cocktail. Okay. Do I dip my head? Yes. He's dipping his head. Brain freeze. (laughs) Okay, I'm coming out. Okay. I did it. Okay. Well done. They say it's healthy. They say it's healthy. <laughs> I think I prefer this bit. Back in the sauna. Lars Bevanger, DW in and out of the Oslo Fjord. Lars Bevanger ending his report and the programme for us in pretty much the same way that I would like to end the day. The feedback address for your steamy sauna confessions is inside Europe at dw.com. This programme was produced by Helen Sini, with help from me, Kate Laycock, and sound engineers Lars Schlemmer and Jürgen Kuhn. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Bonn, Germany. <laughs>